You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Christine de Pizan. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Leah Flanagan. Hi, Victoria and Leah. Hello. Hello. So let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Victoria, you can go first. Sure. Hi, everybody. As Marie said, I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I have a PhD in Renaissance drama and gender and sexuality studies from Florida State University. And uh, currently I write for various publications and play ukulele in my free time. And in my not free time, I'm a community engagement manager for a market research firm specializing in agriculture. Thanks, Victoria. I did not realize you played the ukulele. That's so fun. Uh, Leah, you go ahead. Well, hello. I'm Leah Flanagan. I currently live and work in St. Paul, Minnesota. I have a master's degree in early modern European history from Loyola and bachelor's degrees in history and English. Um, which means that I'm very excited for today's topic. <laughs> uh, in my free time, I cuddle with cats and I'm currently rediscovering playing the piano. That sounds delightful. Thanks, Leah. Uh, we're so glad to have your historical expertise in this episode. Um, so to introduce myself, I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show. Uh, I've completed a PhD in early modern literature and an MDiv in theology and women's gender and sexuality studies. And I've been working for the last couple of years under Anne Coldiron on a project producing an edition of the Tudor translations of Christine de Pizan, which is sort of why I wanted to do this episode, even though I've mostly worked so far on Caxton's translation of the Book of the Deeds of Arms and Chivalry and Robert Wire's translation of the Letter of Athea to Hector, but I thought we should probably focus on uh, De Pizan's best-known work, The Book of the City of Ladies, for this episode. So let me give a little bit of information on De Pizan before we talk about our previous familiarity with her and then get into some of the details of the Book of the City of Ladies. So Christine de Pizan is a prolific late 14th, early 15th century writer uh, born in 1364. She was Italian by birth, but she moved to France as a child where her father served as astrologer to Charles V. She was married at 15, and after both her father and her husband had died around 10 years later, she was left to support 
her children and her mother, at the same time that she was involved in these draining lawsuits about uh, finances. So she might have at this point worked for a time as a copyist in Paris manuscript workshops, but it was also at this time that she really started um, her career in self-education and public writing. Her autobiographical writing so she was always interested in studying and reading, um, but it was now that she really began to uh, dedicate herself to her writing in earnest, and with the patronage of various French no nobles, she became one of the first Western women to support herself by means of her writing. Her first works in the early 1390s were courtly poetry, and she quickly branched out into like so many other areas. It's very impressive. Her works eventually include things like uh, devotional, allegorical, and moral poetry, a debate over the treatment of women in uh, the popular work, The Romance of the Rose, and um, various prose works on politics, warfare, conduct manuals, as well as a biography of Charles V. One of her most popular works in her own time was The Letter of Athea to Hector, which is this complex and playful mixture of prose and poetry allegorizing a hundred mythological figures and events. Um, but her best-known work today, uh, and what she's known for in terms of being one of the foremothers of feminism is this work where she produces a defense of women, um, the prose work, The Book of the City of Ladies, which was written around 1404 at the height of her career. One of her final works um, was a poem celebrating Joan of Arc, and it's thought that de Pizan probably died before Joan of Arc herself was uh, burned at the stake in 1431. So that's a little bit about de Pizan, and I know about her mostly because of this project that, I, that I've been a part of, but I'm interested to hear what uh, about you two. What is your previous experience with uh, Christine de Pizan? Um, well, I had read a little of Christine's work when I was in college and working on my master's degree um, because medieval literature and culture, of course, seeps into early modern European thought quite drastically, as you know very well from your project. Uh, but that was literal years ago, and I had forgotten almost all of the book of the City of Ladies until preparing for this episode. So I really enjoyed the excuse of getting to reconnect with her and her work and learning more about her again for our conversation. Yeah, my, my experience is, is very much like Leah's. Um, I was first introduced to Christine's work in undergrad. Um, I took a um, medieval and Renaissance women class, I think my, my junior or senior year of college. Um, and that's the first time I read her. And then in my graduate program, I read some of her poetry, and I read Book of the City of Ladies several times, um, at least once in a class with uh, Anne, whom you've already mentioned, Marie. Uh, but I, it's been years as well since uh, since I had read this text. Um, certainly since I I graduated, which would have been, gosh, seven, almost eight uh, years ago. So it was. It was great to come back to this and uh, and 
kind of dive into the text again and remember just how smart and funny and interesting it is um, and and why I really uh, respect Christine as a writer and thinker so much. Um, Also, a number of bits of the text felt differently to me Um, now, every other time I read this book, uh, I was a Protestant and now as a Catholic, um, there are bits that really just resonate, uh, differently. So I'm, I'm sure I'll talk about that more as we progress through the episode. Well, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't actually, I hadn't done much with the book of the city of ladies before, um, just in the last couple months of this just barely started to get into it for this project so this is uh you you two probably have much uh longer experience with this work than I actually have at this point (laughs) um so let's get into talking about the book of the city of ladies a little bit let me just describe the structure of the book and then we can get into some of the details of the section that we read um so in this work, the central conceit is that we have this Christine figure who's approached by the personified female figures of the virtues of reason, rectitude, and justice, so that the four of them can together construct this city that will defend women from being maligned by men, particularly by male writers. And the city is going to be built out of and populated by examples of virtuous or otherwise remarkable women. Um, the movement is generally from examples of pagan women to and biblical Hebrew women through historical and contemporary Christian ladies to then female saints, saints and martyrs, which includes a treatment of the life of de Pizan's namesake, St. Christine. And the Virgin Mary is, of course, the queen of the city and the ultimate unassailable example of female virtue. So in the opening chapters, which is all that we're focusing on today, the Christine figure describes her depression at being a woman given the weight of the authorities who have described women as so vile and sinful, and she then has a vision of these three virtues who give her the task of building the city of ladies. Reason says that she'll help to build the foundations, rectitude will help construct the buildings, and justice will finish the turrets and populate the city. Christine and Reason then begin to dig the foundations of the city in the field of letters by countering various misogynist claims that the Christine figure raises and Reason refutes. So I wonder what are your responses in general to De Pizan's project in this work or to this opening section in particular, and what is it that feels sort of groundbreaking um, about this or anything that feels sort of still fresh about it. The thing I love most about um, the way the project is set up in the early chapters is its emphasis on a nuanced vision of credibility and authority. Uh, The appeal to authority is definitely one, I think you could argue the central textual rhetorical device um, of medieval literature in lots of ways. Uh, And reason in particular interrogates what makes textual authority reliable, how underrepresented voices can benefit from an expansion of perspective in that regard, and who gets to be an authority and why. And I think that it's, it's really 
um, groundbreaking to, to echo your <laughs> archaeological pun, um, and also just incredibly, um, it, it's it's evergreen. It's it's still timely. This idea of um, who gets to speak about what and why. Yeah, and part of that it seems to me is like the emphasis that points on personal experience as a kind of authority, uh, women's personal experience particularly that she brings up, like, well, I should know from my own body that women's bodies <laughs> are not just effective, that sort of thing. And even calling to personal experience outside of oneself, but, uh, there was the reference to a, an interaction that Christine had with a gentleman walking home from a pub and how that interaction should go into her reasoning. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with everything you said, Victoria. Uh, it, it, it's like this book is a all-female cast of the Divine Comedy, almost. Uh, there are aspects of it that feel a lot like Dante's allegory of walking through past these pagans and pointing out the virtues of them. Um, but it's also more of a literary review at the same time where she's almost naming authors and their fallacies and weighing their arguments against the reason and virtue that these three figures are giving her. Yeah, she does. She calls out um, Aristotle, Plato, Cato. Um, I, I don't remember the the name of the guy Christine is reading at the beginning. Um, Matthiolus? I, yeah. Yes. Um, I've, I've only heard of him in the context of this book, um, but I, I would like to read the incredibly sick burn uh, that she applies to him, because I, I think it really speaks to um, what we're saying about um, how textual authority can be used for ill or for good. Um, okay. I started to read it and went on for a little while, because the subject seemed to me not very pleasant for people who do not enjoy lies and of no use in developing virtue or manners, given its lack of integrity in diction and theme, and after browsing here and there and reading the end, I put it down in order to turn my attention to more elevated and useful study. But just the sight of this book, even though it was of no authority, made me wonder how it happened that so many different men and learned men among them have been and are so have been and are so inclined to express both in speaking and in their treatises and writings so many devilish and wicked thoughts about women and their behavior like that the way she uses the negative to say like uh because it wasn't virtuous because it wasn't thoughtful um i just is so so funny and smart and uh, and has so much of a later feminist thought in it, too. Like, I, I can hear uh, de Beauvoir in that. I can hear Wollstonecraft in that. Um, I, I even think you could argue for hearing a little bit of Judith Butler in that. Um, just really incredible. 
And I love that this reading uh, that she does takes place right after she's been interrupted in her studying to go attend to a family dinner. Um, there's that intertwining of the everyday uh, feminine tasks with her studying going on there. That's such, just a, such a great introductory moment to the whole thing. Yeah, kind of an, an anti-Kubla Khan moment, right? Or a, a feminized Kubla Khan moment. It also makes her a more realistic narrator, a more believable narrator for having inserted this narrative within her own life like that. Yeah, I guess it sort of then lends credibility to the vision that follows of these three women who appear to her, uh, taking her into this sort of otherworldly realm. Um, which, that's such an interesting scene. I wonder what you make of the echoes of the Annunciation going on in this introduction. It's very consciously echoed when um, the Christine figure says that she's the handmaiden of these three women and ready to do their uh, their bidding. Um, I, I did notice that that seems to echo the Annunciation um, which I suppose makes sense given Mary's centrality to the city of ladies later in the text. Um, it makes sense that Christine would be kind of unbeknownst to herself, aligning herself with this project before it even starts. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it's also great for setting up reason, rectitude, justice, as these otherworldly, angelic, almost deified beings. Um, because, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't that start with the phrase, don't be afraid? Um, where the Where reason begins to address her? My dear daughter, don't be afraid, for we have come to have not come to do you any harm. Wow, I did not realize that, but that is powerful. Yeah. And it's also in this moment where Christine is, uh, the Christine figure in the text is silenced uh, or is in silence and um reason tells her not to be afraid and this is sort of the beginning of her this figure's progress towards speech and affirmation of female speech um so i think at the very end of the whole work it is the uh christine figure herself who's speaking to the readers i'd have to <laughs> look back to make sure but um there's definitely yeah, a, that's that's true we we sort of become her and and she becomes the the trio of um of ladies yeah so there's such an emphasis on um female speech and valorization of uh women uh women speaking in the text that sort of begins at this moment with uh reason telling her not to be afraid i guess but um well, let's move on and looking at some of the details of this opening section. I think one of the things that stood out to me as sort of the most 
fresh about the style and the writing here is um, this strategy of antiphrasis that Reason talks about in chapter two, um, where you take something that is apparently supposed to be negative and read it in a positive light. And we have a lot of that going on um, in these opening chapters. And uh, it's just sort of seems so playful and fun to me. For example, like in chapter nine, where, where you have reason taking a Roman saying that if a woman hadn't been created, man would converse with the gods. And then she turns it on its head to say that, you know, since humanity gained becoming one with God through Mary, and since what the pagans considered to be gods are actually devils, then it's true to say that if Mary hadn't been created, man would be conversing with the gods, that is to say with demons. So it becomes this uh, positive thing about women rather than a negative thing. Um, so I, wondered... I fully, like, <laughs> cackled and screamed. <laughs> That's just, like, the greatest rhetorical device. And, like, just, like, okay, yeah, but Virgin Mary, mic drop. Amazing. Love it. <laughs> yeah, and um, actually one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this opening, these opening ten chapters is the way that reason counters the saying that God made woman to weep, talk, and spin, turning that into a positive one with this kind of catalog of biblical women's speech, this kind of hall of fame of women speaking in the Bible, that just felt like so current to me, so surprisingly current, this treatment of biblical women, like it's the kind of thing I'd expect to find in like the blue parakeet, parakeet sorry, you're a Jesus feminist, um, like these works that kind of introduced me to the idea of Christian feminism. It's the same kind of examples going on here in Christine Nibson so, so long ago. What did you guys think of that passage? Maybe it didn't strike you the same way that it struck me. No, I was like Victoria. I was laughing my way through that chapter and kind of going, yes, girl, as I'm reading through that. Um, the one that really stood out to me was, uh, the redefinition of Eve, uh, just because yes. that's something that like, I definitely have had to address in my own journey. And I know that a lot of other women that I know have had to address it, especially if they were raised in evangelical Christian settings. So to read Christine addressing Eve as a worthy and intentional creation of God and then rephrasing Eve's role in the fall of man in comparison to the Virgin Mary, that was just kind of a chef's kiss moment. Um, and I actually wrote down this quote because I didn't want to lose it, that man has gained far more through Mary than he ever lost through Eve. When I read that quote, that was when I was literally screaming. I had to set down the manuscript and walk away for a second. Me too. I, that is just, that's so huge and so freeing and important. And um, uh, just to piggyback on what you said, since um, this is, is in the same paragraph, 
um, when she talks about what it is to be created in the image of God and that it's not to be taken bodily, but is in fact referring to soul and intellect and therefore um, you get greater credence of the fact that Eve um, is, is taken from the side of Adam and is still made in the image of God. So she's a partner and, and not sort of this, you know, Eve was created last and Eve sinned first and all of the, um, all of the anti-Eve um, kind of machinations that you get from, from other biblical interpretations. I, it was so, so freeing and, and fulfilling to me. Yeah, that that discussion of Eve here too just really struck me thinking of my own, like when I first had beginnings of inklings of what Christian feminism might be. Like in high school, I read something, I don't remember what it was exactly, but uh, some, some book about Esther, I think, made uh, observation uh, that Eve wasn't an afterthought, she was a refinement, and I was like, whoa, 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 <laughs> wait, Eve isn't lesser, Doesn't Eve doesn't mean women are lesser, <laughs> because she was made second, <laughs> so it's like that kind of uh, reinterpretation of Eve is still so, uh, <laughs> can be so uh, freeing, and here it is, way back when with Christine de Pizan, it's like, there's nothing new under the sun. Um. And talking too about sort of hearing the voices of, of later feminists in these sections, um, what you were saying about the maids, uh, the created second argument, um, this section also reminded me of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's response to that. Um, in the woman's Bible, she makes this really funny joke about, well, if the creation order argument holds, then cows should have power over Adam, and nobody thinks that should happen. And so, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah. Thinking, I was thinking of that And then um, that whole catalog in chapter 10 about how it's actually a good thing for women to to shed tears and a good thing for women to be talkative, um, that sort of struck me the same way, like you would expect to see, like her emphasis on Mary Magdalene uh, being such an important thing that she was given the task of announcing the resurrection, um, that sort of thing is, it just feels so fresh and um, it's something you see still being emphasized a lot and the whole this all of these interpretations of biblical women it almost feels like a kind of antithesis of the the Bible itself that um, the Bible has so often read and as portraying women in a negative way that it almost becomes what you assume to be the intended meaning of the text and so reading it in a positive way could in fact be doing this same strategy and um, that kind of interpretation of the Bible is just uh, something that was so freeing to me when I first began to encounter people doing that kind of thing and again here it is way back when Christina Pizan. <laughs> and I think that kind of biblical um, reorientation or reclamation that you're talking about 
is particularly powerful in context because this text is in so many ways a profoundly Christian text. So it, it's not like this is a text that is rereading the Bible because Christians are stupid and God doesn't exist and, uh, you know, patriarchal sky daddy, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is a text that recognizes that justice comes from God and that bodily creation is good and lots of, of really central um, Christian ideas are seen as valid within the text. So I, I think that in some ways that kind of biblical, um, the, the, recognition of uh, the misogyny of some biblical interpretation almost is more is stronger and more validated coming from uh you know because the call is coming from inside the house so to speak yeah and um speaking of the patriarchal sky daddy one of the things that i love so much here and that seems to just looks increasingly complex to me the more I look at it is the uh, these three personified virtues reason rectitude and justice and how they they're this kind of female trinity um, if though they're obviously not like one-to-one -one correlations with the persons of the trinity but they are uh, they're also not not God in the text like justice says I am part of God and God is part of me. In effect, we amount to the same thing. So it's really not a minor part of the defense of women here that we're looking at God from a kind of a different angle, making feminine personifications of divine attributes a way of representing the divine, um, even though they're also these virtues are also the daughters of God. And uh, it, it's, yeah, it's complicated. Um, but it's really uh, very fun to me. And it's also interesting that um, it's something that de Pizan does more than once having this female uh, kinds of female trinities. So in the letter to, from Othea to Hector, you also have her connecting the goddesses of Diana, Ceres, and Isis with the very the persons of the trinity in a section that relates to the Apostles' Creed. Um, so she's kind of interested in female trinities. What did you think of these virtues as a kind of female trinity. I'm going to out myself here a little bit. My first impression of these three, I I was not thinking trinity. Uh, my first thought, and this is probably because of the season that we are currently in, but my first thought was that these women were almost like the ghosts of Christmas from A Christmas Carol with a little bit of the three goddesses at the beginning of the Iliad just thrown in. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't until that justice chapter that you mentioned where it's very blatantly stated, um, like we're one and the same. Um, that's when I'm like, oh, they're like the Trinity. Uh, before that point, it didn't it didn't feel like that for me. It felt more like um, a Greek imagery. Um, which 
Yeah. Makes sense because of her, uh, of De Pizan's background. Um, but it is, it, it is interesting, this conflation with this classical education mixed with the Christian idea of the Trinity. It, it's a very conflicting image in my head. Um, yeah, and it's sort of a very unexpected image, which makes it hard to kind of overlay on the Trinity. I think that uh, it's kind of an interesting approach to importing some sort of feminine representation to divinity. Um, and I was wondering uh, if there are other kinds of representations of the Trinity or the divine that um, you've encountered that have been significant to you in your um, spiritual life because it's it can be such an affirming thing to think of to to have images of God that go beyond uh, the uh, the sky daddy that <laughs> Victoria mentioned I mean for me one of one representation of the Trinity that's particularly appealing is that 15th century Trinity icon written by Andrei Rublev, which I hadn't actually encountered until I took a course on prayer practices in my MDiv. Um, and in that icon, we have the three figures um, representing the three persons who are so serene and they're not obviously gendered is the thing that stands out to me. So it's not exactly like non-traditional since it's a very well-known icon, but it's a representation of the Trinity that speaks to me and it's like peacefulness and it's lack of emphasis on markers of masculinity. Um, or is there anything that you guys have encountered that's significant to you along those lines? Well, not a representation of the Trinity, but I, I have spoken um, at length on other episodes of this podcast about the evolution of my Marian devotion as a Catholic. And, and for me, um, the, the elevation of, of Mary and, and praying to Mary, um, and for that matter, praying to um, any number of female saints um, gives me the, the kind of peace in representation that you're talking about. So not exactly the same thing, but a similar thing. Yeah, mine is a even a, it's not a specific image of the Trinity either. Um, mine is more of a, a concept, and I don't, I honestly don't know where I got this concept from. Um, but uh, the connection that I've had to the concept of the Trinity has been the idea that the body, mind, and soul are a reflection of the existence of the three-in-one God within us. Again, kind of that mirroring of being created in their image. Um, it, it rings true to me because of that. Uh, having those divides within ourselves that mirrors our creator. Um, and kind of exploring what those different divides mean within me as a whole and within my faith. 
I like the idea of those three things as a sort of trinity, um, because I think that them being three, but also one, um, giving a, a unity of kind of body, spirit, and intellect is really central to how I think God sees creation. Um, so I, I like that a lot. Thank you for sharing that, Leah. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Yeah. Happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of um, goes back to Christine's emphasis on um, the spirit or the soul being the way that uh, one of the ways that women are created in the image of God. Um, in, uh, in that passage on Eve that we were looking at. Um, so really what we're saying is everything just keeps coming back to <laughs> Dijon. Uh, she's at the center. <laughs> she is. Um, though there are some aspects of the text that don't really seem um, as fresh, of course, at, at this point. Uh, there's some aspects that remain very medieval feeling like that she's not really advocating for this full societal equality between women and men. I mean, for example, Reason says that even though women are intelligent enough to learn the law, it's not women's place to bring cases before a court, like that sort of thing. Um, and when the Christine figure is talking at the end of the work, you can kind of, you can easily read that exhortation as telling women to stay in their place and just be virtuous there. Um, and also in this opening section, there's the equation of disfigurement or disability with mental evil. That's, um, of course, a, a very medieval kind of equation that's brought up a few times when Reason says that men with bodily impediments slander women because they're bitter and twisted in the mind. Uh, were there any other sort of medieval aspects that stood out to you guys? Uh, the part about the disfigurement bummed me out. Yeah. As it always, as it always does. Um, but I mean, it is very much of the period, so I, I can't get too mad about it. Um, just to kind of be silly and nitpicky, um, the fact that she uses the word rectitude instead of righteousness always pulls me out of the text. Like, I know what rectitude is, but it's such an archaic word that almost no one uses that I, I always kind of have to take a beat and, and think about it. Um, and also, Marie, I agree with what you said about uh, the section where she says women um, shouldn't have, you know, have certain careers in the law or politics. And I wondered, I didn't have time to look this up today. Uh, I wish I would have. But I, I wondered whether um, anti-suffragists drew on that piece of this text to make their arguments because I know um, both in the United States and in Britain anti-suffragists frequently said that women being involved in the political sphere would sully their natural um, feminine virtue and I because I saw that here I wondered um, if there was a historical precedent for using this text in that way. Oh uh, yeah, that would be, <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Uh, I, I I wonder that as well. Um, I'd have to look up what the French word for uh, rectitude here 
was actually, but I know in the 1523 English translation, it is actually something more like righteousness. It's right wiseness that's used as a translation. So I think it's something more like that in the uh, French. And it's just this particular translation that we read that uses rectitude, which makes sense with uh, the symbol of rectitude being her, you know, ruler scepter thing. But yeah, it does sort yeah. of take you out of it. Um, well, I guess we, we can move on shortly to the passing on segment, but before we do that, is there anything else that you guys wanted to bring up from this section or other things in the work or even other works from Christine de Pizan that you really wanted to get in there before we go on? I had one random phrase that I wanted to bring up to you guys. Like, there there are really just so many gems, just even in these first 10 chapters, where it's like, De Pizan will just say something and move on, and I'll want her to stay on that phrase for the rest of the chapter, but she'll just never mention it again. But there was one line from the second chapter that really made me want to pause. Did you guys notice her mention that the highest realm of all is the realm of abstract ideas? I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that statement, but I'm still thinking about it. I didn't notice that, but now I'm thinking about all of the ways the Cartesian split is gendered and how like her saying that completely messes with that idea in ways that I am a fan of. Yeah, that's interesting because in that section she's saying that philosophers can get things wrong in the highest realm of ideas, right? Because they contradict each other. So you shouldn't take as uh, gospel what they say about women, basically. Huh. Yes, it, it's just such an extraordinary or astonishing statement to just throw out there and then she never comes back to it uh i really because there's so many different ways that we could go with what the realm of abstract ideas is it it's just a wonderful thing that i wanted to point out and let everybody just resonate knowing that that is now a thing because de Pizan said it is. <laughs> it's true that that is just an enormous idea to just feel like, oh, this is how it is. Okay, and moving on. It's fantastic, and I think she's the only one who could do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just drops... Um huge things sometimes in her texts and just moves on like in a different text I was reading or no it's later in the, later in the book of City of Ladies actually at one point she's like um, because you know it's really bad to have just one guy in charge of everything that doesn't work and just goes on <laughs> like, wait <laughs> you mean the king <laughs> that's beautiful uh, which does make sense given her political context she had to 
navigate so many, <laughs> so much conflict in the French court with the, everything that was going on with uh, Charles VI and then all the con the people trying to get the power and so on, and she was navigating both sides. Uh, but uh, it's just huge things like that. She just gives and then moves on. Um, I think it would be it would be great if we could do another episode sometime on some other works of Christine de Pizan, like especially the treatment of women in uh, the letter of Athea to Hector, maybe uh, something on the book of the transmutation of fortune where the Christine figure in the text takes a page out of St. Perpetua's book and transforms into a man at one point. Um, but I think this was a good sort of introduction to de Pizan uh, for this show. And um, I guess we can move on to the passing on segment, unless there's anything else you guys wanted to bring up. No, I think that's good. Okay, well, uh, Victoria, why don't you start us off then with any uh, suggestions you have for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I am recommending a social history that I am currently in the middle of. I haven't finished it yet. But um, it made me think of this text because it is also about um, correcting some oversights and misunderstandings and stereotypes about women of a particular time. Uh, it's called Bad Girls, Young Women, Sex, and Rebellion Before the 1960s. Uh, and it is by um, a historian, Amanda H. Litauer. And what Litauer does is uses um, public historical documents, so uh, police records, health records, boarding house records, things like that, to undermine the assumption that um, in the 60s, rebellion began and um, teenage breaking out of kind of 1950s squareness began. Uh, she cites a different moment in every chapter where women rebelled against socio-sexual norms of the first half of the 20th century and says that we don't really talk about this um, because of lots of complex social social factors. Uh, for instance, last night I finished a chapter on the Victory Girls, who are young women who essentially were like World War II soldier groupies, and they uh, follow soldiers around. And this is framed as, uh, in some cases, a positive contribution to the war effort. So it's really fascinating um, reframing of uh, women's sexual agency in a time in American history where women's sexual agency is not often talked about. Ooh, interesting. I'll have to check that out. Uh, what about you, Leah? Oh, well, I'm going to be sharing the historical love with my suggestion. Um, in preparation for this episode, I fell down an internet search wormhole uh, just learning more about de Pizan and the world that she grew up in as well as died in. Um, and I found myself looking at Marguerite Perrette, another medieval French author uh, who came before de Pizan. Um, although she had 
much less emphasis on reason and more emphasis on mystic. She was a Beguine mystic who was executed for heresy in 1310, specifically because of her book, The Mirror of Simple Souls, um, which is a book of verse expounding on how the soul becomes one with God through love. Uh, I have, of course, now started to read it. <laughs> I have not read all of it yet, but I have enjoyed what I've read so far. Um, and I, I think it's worth a read for anybody who might be interested in De Pizan and other women who were writing uh, around the same time. Yeah, that's so great. I've actually thought a few times we should do an episode about uh, Mirror for Simple Souls. That would be a good topic if we could um, get that going sometime. Um, so for my recommendation, I'll go ahead and recommend uh, another work by Christine de Pizan that I've mentioned a couple times now, The Letter of Athea to Hector, which is Again, less well known today than the book of the City of Ladies, but it's still it's so interesting that one thing about it that's interesting is that De Pizan presents the female characters' faults as um, a result of their humanity rather than of their femininity. So you have some of that same kind of argument going on there that you have going on in uh, Book of the City of Ladies about you know it's human nature, not female nature. Um, it's also just such a fun and creative text in the way that she structures it as this serious, studious, scholarly, uh, involved commentary on her own poetic text that she creates as if it's this ancient <laughs> authoritative text. So that's just very fun. Um, so that's my suggestion for us. So that is our show for today. To Thank you, um, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Um, thank you, Leah and Victoria, for joining me for this episode. Uh, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Leah Flinnikin, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks for an episode on a claymation Christmas celebration. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things Love. <laughs>